Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to KXC. If I've not met you before, uh, my name's Pete, and I'm part of the staff team uh, here at KXC. We are starting a new teaching series today. Now, give us some shout-outs. Let's just deal with the confusion straight away. Does, uh, do any of you have any idea what the series is called? Rising? We've got Rising over here? Yeah, okay, Uprising. It, took a bit, it was a bit quicker than the morning service. Uh, it's been confusing the staff team all week. Our graphic designers got a bit bold. Um, and... Uh, taking things to the next level. We're, we're doing a series called Uprising, Cultivating a Revolution. Okay, still hadn't dropped for a few. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, uprising, uh, Cultivating a Revolutionary Prayer Life. Yeah, still dropping, actually, around the room, so that's good. Uh, <laughs> that's actually amazing to watch. It's way better from up here. <clears throat> so... Uprising. It's uh, cultivating a revolutionary prayer life. And uh, we're going to spend the next five weeks in it. We called it Uprising because of this quote from a theologian from our century called Karl Barth. And he said, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. To clasp the hands in prayer, to pray, is somehow the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. Uh, Jesus said this, when his disciples said to him, well, look, Jesus, how do you pray? This is what he said. He said, pray to your Father in heaven and say this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a fundamentally revolutionary prayer, right? In, right in the middle of that is this, is this idea that there is a kingdom at hand, at work in this world right now that is somehow not of God that somehow needs to be thrown, that's dethroned, that somehow needs to be overthrown. And somehow, right in the midst of that, prayer has everything to do with it. So we want to spend the next five weeks, or the next four weeks after tonight, um, unpackling this idea. We've got this vision, right, at KXC, to serve God's purpose, to make all things new. It comes out of Revelation 21. We believe that God's kingdom is coming. Um, but we, what we want to say over these next four or five weeks is that Prayer is right at the heart of how we go about seeing that happen. Um, and prayer is one of those sort of um, pretty unique things, really. It's a kind of universal experience, right? Uh, everyone has had probably at some point in their life, at some time in some place, over some kind of an issue, an experience of prayer. And that means right across this room, everyone's bringing different histories to the table, Ones where there's moments of hallelujah, almost like things are so good, you almost want to reach out in prayer. Sometimes things are so bad, and Fruz has just given us an extraordinary language, an example of someone praying through those times that are confusing and painful and difficult. Everyone's got different histories, different experiences. Everyone's bringing different personalities to the table. Is it that boring, Anna? Uh, everyone's got... <laughs> heard it this morning. Um, so, it, you know, like people are different bringing different personalities to the table. And that means that right across this room, a whole different bunch of experiences. So we thought, well, that sounds quite fun. So an event recently we did, Volunteers Barbecue, um, we just grabbed people. We just pounced on people and, and gave them a question. Uh, no preparation time, gut response, what does prayer mean to you? Uh, this is a really short clip of what people said. Cue the vid. Prayer is being raw and honest to God in your most vulnerable form. And that's how he redirects us back into relationship with him. It's when we're fully honest with him. Prayer to me, it means speaking to God creatively, um, however it feels good to me. So through words, through painting, through drawing, through pictures, um, through writing, just whatever allows me to feel comfortable with speaking with God. 
Prayer is an incredibly important part of my relationship with God. I think being able to, to hear from God and speak to God, be it in the morning, in the shower, my, my cycle to work throughout the day or in the evening, um, it's incredible to know that I can speak to God and hear from Him. Prayer means a chat with God. Prayer, on a personal level, is the way that I get to hear the Father speak into my heart and over my life, but also it's the way that I get to uh, ask Him what's on His heart and agree for those things to come as reality on earth. To me, prayer means spending time with God and more recently it's sort of shifted to mean more time listening to God too and hearing what He has to say for me each day but in terms of the bigger questions about my life. Prayer to me um, is about building a deeper trust and intimacy with God. Prayer means to me listening to God and then speaking to God. Prayer means to me a renewed London. Prayer to me Besides loving God and loving others, it's probably the most important thing that I'll have to do on earth. Prayer means absolutely everything to me because it's something that I do every day and chat with God throughout the day. Prayer means to me a continuation of hope. Amazing. What an, an array of answers to that question. That, can we give these guys a round of applause? There's a number of them in the room. Thank you. Thank you for... Um, not all of them were happy to do it, so I'm really grateful <laughs> for doing it. So um, that's in the church. That's in this church. Uh, so think about the church called City, and then think about beyond the church. And um, there was this Guardian article last year on the back of some research by comrades that we did some research around prayer, and they found that over 51% of people pray. So that means when you walk down into King's Cross, they draw, and every other person you walk past prays. That means whether or not they've got, they would describe themselves as having a faith or not, they still pray over half of people. And when you get into the text of the report, it says this, that among the non-religious, those specifically saying they don't believe in God, personal, the thing that motivated people to pray, personal crisis or tragedy is the most common reason for praying, with one in four saying they pray to gain comfort or feel less lonely. That's people who don't believe in God. And, and what I want to say is that, that no matter where we are on our journey right now, at some point, in some place, at some time, I really believe that everyone has reached out. They've, they've got to a point because someone they love is in pain and they cannot fix it and they cannot make them feel better and they cannot give them the answer to the massive question in their life or they are going through something themselves. At some point, everyone gets to that place where they say, this world is broken. This world is not right. Something has gone wrong and they reach to a higher power somewhere to resolve it. We're talking about an uprising, right, where there's this kingdom at play, this kingdom that's so not right in this world. And, and what we're seeking after is, is a revolution that would up, uh, dethrone that kingdom. That desire, that sits in so many of us, not just those who have faith. But for us as Christians, I really believe it's our calling in this world to live a life that leads to this sort of an uprising. I just want to illustrate this, illustrate this, tell you a story about some Eastern Orthodox Christians. Uh, uh, they're an amazing group of people, and I think it just illustrates what it is I'm trying to say here. Um, let me just explain to you, and, and, and bear with me. I find this fascinating, so I hope you do too. But um, basically, Eastern Orthodox Church... People come to faith. They want to put their trust in Jesus. They realize that Jesus is good news. And they want to respond to that by saying, hey, I want to get baptized. I want to say that, that his story over my life, that one that Anna so brilliantly described in communion earlier, that I want to be the story that defines my life. So I would like to get baptized. 
And so when they get baptized on a Sunday, they call that Sunday the eighth day of the week. And that is not because they have more days of the week, right? So they, they call it the eighth day of the week. And let me just explain to you why. Because what they're trying to do, symbolically here, is put their finger on something absolutely beautiful and absolutely significant and relevant to what it is we're talking about today. So this is how they get to the eighth day, right? So they've got seven days just like the rest of us. That's Sunday through to Saturday. Sunday being the first day of the week, Saturday the seventh. And then what happens is next Sunday coming is baptism Sunday, and they're baptizing these people um, to accept Jesus as their savior, and they call it the eighth day of the week, not the first day of the next week. They want to make a point here. And that's because in, in their understandings, they look at the creation narrative, right, um, where, where the, uh, the poetic language of that narrative talks about the world being made in seven days. And so that number they've taken as a number of completion, a number that represents this world in all of its beauty, yes, but also in all of its limits and all of the problem and all of the pain. So the, the number seven and those seven days of the week represent this world and its limits and this kingdom that is here. Um, so what they then say is like, no, no, that, that's no longer your story. Those are no longer your limits. You're not defined by this world. You're defined by an eternal one. You're defined by Jesus Christ now and his kingdom and his truths of your life and his story. And so we're going to baptize you on the eighth day of the week. And the eighth day of the week in their understanding was this day that was just like open to eternity. So the seven days had happened, the seven days that represent this world and everything that's in it, but we're going to baptize you on the eighth day to say something really significant about your life moving forwards. You are now, as Alexander Schmemann puts an amazing writer on this, your life is now open to eternity, not to the limits of this world, not defined by this world, but open to eternity and transparent to the kingdom of God. Now that you follow Jesus, you're a citizen of heaven. So on this, after this eighth day, this amazing day, this symbolic day of baptizing people and telling this true story over their life, they then go on something called Bright Week, which is essentially a retreat, right? So they, they, they get baptized, and then they all walk off onto this retreat. And they spend a week called Bright Week just soaking themselves in the truths of this new life that they've found, in the, in the realities of an eternal kingdom and not an earthly kingdom in the realities of what Jesus says over their lives. And they, they worship all day long and they, they take communion several times every single day just to get totally soaked in the realities of an eternal kingdom. That this is what defines them now. But at the end of Bright Week, and this is the culmination, the climax of the entire thing, is the most significant part, is that right at the end, as a, as a sort of symbolic act, They've, gone, they've got baptized on the eighth day. They spent this whole week just soaking in the truths of the kingdom of God. What they then do is they all ceremonially walk back down. They walk back down into the villages, into the towns, and into the city that they came from, to the trades, to the family, to the life that they had been a part of before they got baptized. And it's this amazing idea that they're going to carry the life of the eighth day. This new reality, this new eternal kingdom that they are now citizens of. They're going to carry that life back down into the seven. This is all about taking the life of the eighth back into the realms of the seven, back into regular life. And, uh, and Rowan Williams says this, former Archbishop of Canterbury, he was asked this question, where will you find the baptized people? He said this, in the neighborhood of chaos. We are not saved by Jesus from the world. We're saved by Jesus for the world, right? To carry his life right back down into the heart of the seven and all of its mess into the neighborhood, i.e. nearby the chaos. 
goes on to say the gathering of the baptized people is therefore not a convocation of those who are privileged, elite, and separate, but of those who have accepted what it means to be in the heart of a needy, contaminated, messy world. That's you and I. We are those people that belong to the eighth day if you've accepted Jesus as your savior. And you've gone on bright week and you're soaked in those realities with the calling on your life. The climax of this whole thing is to take that life right back into the seven. Uh, and, and this means that we are a prophetic people. That is the call in our life, to be a prophetic people, a people who know the future, who belong to that kingdom, but who are bringing it forward with every word, with every prayer, with every action of our lives, with every relationship back down into the heart of the day-to-day life. And so at the heart of this prophetic calling on our lives is imagination. Imagination, because it's so easy just to see the world around us, but we need to perceive the world around us in light of the kingdom of God, right? We are called to be a prophetic people. And this is what Walter Brueggemann says about this. So imagine he's talking, he's using the imagery of like a dictatorship. Um, And it's in his book called The Prophetic Imagination. It's a beautiful book. He says this, imagination is a danger to this regime. Remember, we're talking about an uprising against the disorder of this world. Imagination is a danger. Thus, every totalitarian regime is frightened of the artist. Have you noticed that? In anything like the Arab Spring or whatever, they're trying to shut down the artists first. Why? Because they somehow stir imagination. They don't just see things for how they are. They imagine what they could be, and they start to paint that picture for the rest around them. It's a danger to a regime of totalitarian regime. So it is the uh, so the frightened of the artist. It is the vocation, the calling on you and I, of the prophet to keep alive the ministry of imagination, to keep on conjuring and proposing futures, alternative to the single one the king wants to urge as the only thinkable one. The devil would have us believe that there is no way out, there's no alternative, there's no hope, there's no changing, that we are part of a settled brokenness, and we are not. We carry with us the spirit of Jesus Christ, who's risen from the grave, right? So we are a prophetic people, taking that life of the eighth into the seven. Mike Pilevarchi says it like this, the world is full of echoes. What it desperately needs is voices. Voices, not just to echo the world around us, not just to be a mirror of it, but to speak new life into it, like a voice crying in the wilderness, making a straight path for Jesus. So the question we want to ask and respond to with this series over the next four weeks is, is how do we actually live as people of the eighth day? People open to the kingdom, open to eternity, transparent to the kingdom of God. How do we live as people of the eighth day, but in the midst of the seven? in the midst of daily life, as a prophetic people. How do we do it? Because it's, it's not easy, right? It's not easy to actually live that life. And I just really felt like I wanted to say today, like, if you're trying to follow Jesus every single day, wherever you are based for the majority of your time, just a huge well done. I don't mean that in a patronizing way, in a really sincere way, as in, like, well done. If you're trying to stay holy and to live a holy life in this world, well done. If you're trying to use your money in a way that honors um, the poor and is a part of the upside down world of Jesus Christ, then well done. Uh, And if you're trying to just follow Jesus in this city, well done, because it's not easy. And in some ways, we could answer this question by saying, and this would be right, that how do we live as people of the eighth in the seven? Well, it's to look like Jesus, so it's to be compassionate, it's to seek justice, it's to use our money in a way that raises up those on the margins. But 
Those would all be absolutely correct answers. But with this series, we want us to do it one layer underneath those answers. So those are all totally true. That is actually what it looks like to follow, to to be people of the eighth and the seventh. That's all true. It's the way of Jesus. But underneath all that, what I want to say is that to be a prophetic people, we need to be a people who pray. Because it's in prayer that we are able to be all of those things. And it's as we're connected to Jesus and his spirit that we're able to do all of those things. So we want to lean in on prayer over these next four weeks because we want to be a people who renew this city. Um, and so we, that, that's basically the focus of it. And what I want to do really quickly now is to is essentially give a little intro to each of the four talks that are to come um, and to give you a, in, a heads up as to why they're in the series. Um, and and um, the, the, so what I want to talk about is, remember the question is, how do we live as people of the eighth in the seventh? And the response to that is that it's often, not, it's often not very easy. So we have this amazing moment where we realize that Jesus is amazing and we accept him into our life and we get baptized. And then we go on this bright week, metaphorically, and we learn all about him and he's amazing. In some ways, we do a mini bright day when we come here, right? We're reminded of it. Um, but then we go back into the seven and we start living out our lives. And, and if we do that for any length of time, there are some challenges to being people of the eighth, right? We live in attention. And uh, I always want to talk about four gravitational pulls that I think happen when we spend any time in the seven, so to speak. Uh, and uh, the, the list isn't cheery. Uh, so just like, I'm not trying to like, don't clap at this next slide. You know? um, this, this is, um, these are four gravitational pulls that I think take place or are strong within our lives if we live as in, the, in the seven. If we take that walk back down into the neighborhood of chaos, so to speak. And the first is disconnection, a disconnection from Jesus, an unfamiliarity, a lack of intimacy with Jesus. That can start to kick in. It can start to do that. I'm going to talk about ways that we can counter that in just a minute. So, So if we live for any length of time, we can start to feel disconnected from God. You know, forgetting almost and being connected to the eighth day, but just because we're in the seven, we can become isolated. We can become isolated from community, that is. Um, and we start to try and do this life on our own. And we just keep going. I'm going to talk more about that in a second. Hopelessness can kick in. It's a dramatic word, but it's, it's when there's lots of um, pain around us and um, we're getting tired and we're waiting for things to happen, as which is common in the life in the seven. Hopelessness can kick in. And then desensitization. We can essentially just become desensitized. And Shane Claiborne was talking about this a little bit last week, and I'm going to touch on it in a minute. So these are um, the four gravitational pulls that I think can take place. And I want to talk about four ways of praying that essentially are the counterformative act that we can do as a church against those gravitational pulls. Pete asked me to keep the arrows alive while he was away. Um, so so um, this is the first one, right? We can, we, and I'm going to do a few minutes on each. We, we can be the gravitational pull towards disconnection from God. And the, the way that we're going to counteract that, and this is next week's talk, we're going to talk about cultivating a devotional prayer life that cultivates intimacy and connection with Jesus as a counterformative act against that disconnection. And these are the sorts of things, and one of you can relate to any of them, that start to help us feel disconnected from Jesus. Just busyness, just constantly being on the go, constantly filling our day. Uh, being distracted, whether that's by phones or by or just anything in the city, just constantly being distracted, our head being full with everything we've got to do. These sort of things lead to dis- disconnection from Jesus because it, it, it's not like, an, um, these things are like a, a subtle fade, right? 
They're a subtle fade in our life. They're not an event. If it was an event, we'd see it and we'd be like, no, thank you. It's a subtle fade that happens. And so the reality of a disconnection is it's not a moment, it's a fade. And, and it means that in, in five weeks' time or in three months' time, you just sort of wake up and you just have that feeling of like, I just actually feel quite disconnected from God. Like, it doesn't feel much intimacy in my relationship with him. And it just feels a little bit, yeah, we just feel a bit distant. I feel a bit unfamiliar with his voice in my life. Um, and, and we just have faded into disconnection. Henri Nouwen puts it like this. In our worried, overfilled lives, it is clear that we are usually surrounded by so much outer noise that it is hard to hear our God when he is speaking to us. We have often become deaf, unable to know when God calls us and unable to understand in which direction he calls us. If we really believe not only that God exists, but also that he is actively present in our lives, healing, teaching, and guiding, we need to set aside a time and space to give him our undivided attention. We need to cultivate a devotional prayer life, an intimacy with Jesus, a constant connection to him. This is what Jesus talks about in John 15. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. We're constantly trying to bear fruit, but if we get disconnected from Jesus, it's a futile exercise. He goes on to say this, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. It's this picture of intimacy, familiarity with with the whispering of Jesus in our lives that enables us to follow him well. Stays connected to the life of his kingdom in the midst of the kingdom of the seven. Um, and um, Moses got it, right? We often talk about this at KXC. Uh, Moses says to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. What else, skipping forward, what else will distinguish me? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth but your presence? It's the only thing. Like We have a unique contribution on this planet, and it's the presence of God. Like we, lots of people can do lots of things. The thing that we contribute is we carry the presence of God with us and we transform the environment we're in as a result. That is where all of our distinctiveness comes from and all of our creativity comes from being connected to Jesus. So can I ask you, do you see that taking place in your life at all? As you try and be people of the eighth and the seven, do you feel that disconnection setting in? Can you feel yourself busy and distracted and full to the point that you're lacking intimacy with Jesus? If so, come next week, let's talk about it. Next one, isolation. This is about community. Again, busyness, sorry, the, the counter, counter-formal, countering thing that we're going to talk about is cultivating a communal prayer life where we're praying for each other regularly as a way to counteract that gravitational pull of isolation. And this is the sort of things that can contribute again. Again, busyness. It just does. If you're just busy, 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 and you're just keeping your head above water, so to speak, in your life, almost some of the times the first thing to go is other people, right? You just like knuckle down, I'm going to do it myself, unless you're a raging extrovert, which I'm not. But um, in which case, you maybe the only way you do stay above water is to find other people and be with them. Um, but you, you're, you're busy, 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 and you're pushing others out of your life, and you almost get into self-sufficient mode of like, I'm just going to knuckle down, I can do this. Um, and, and because it is really hard to be people of the eighth, faithfully living in the seven, we mess up, right? We make mistakes. And, and, and we don't live as, as purely as we might have liked to. Um, or we act self, whatever it might be, and we mess up, and then shame can kick in. 
I'm sure you can recognize this, where you're like, I can't even tell someone that I did that or that that was on my mind, or this is just how I'm feeling at the moment. And so we start to isolate ourselves through, through shame. And, and we think that surely no one could actually like us like this, let alone God. Um, and so we start to isolate ourselves, and pride can kick in of like, no, I can do this. You know, I can do this alone. Like, I, don't need to, I don't need others to be my strength. I've got strength. And maybe even in a good way is with God. But it's still an individual pursuit with Jesus of just like me and him can deal with this. But actually he gives us the church for a reason. And Aaron got this from the Old Testament. We talk about that picture up there actually is of this passage, Exodus 17, where Moses is contending in prayer for the battle with the Amalekites going on below. And every time he's pray, praying and praising, uh, then they're winning. And every time he gets tired, they start losing um, and Aaron and her come alongside and give him a seat and they hold up his arms and they contend with him they stand in community with him and pray and they win the battle the next one he really gets it when he's priest he, he, he has the tribes of Israel Aaron this is inscribed on, on 12 different blocks on his breastplate and so when he walks into the tabernacle into the presence of, of God he carries them with him that's an amazing picture of what it looks like to be a community praying for one another, carrying each other forward and breakthrough in each other's lives. Jesus himself, at this moment, this great moment of going to Gethsemane, he, he didn't go alone. It says this, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee further along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. This is Jesus we're talking about. And he said to those three, he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. This is Jesus just opening up. It's the ultimate challenge of life in the seven. Jesus went through it. And he said, at that particular moment, he wanted people with him, just being there, praying. The pilgrimage that we're all on, this Christian journey, this trying to be a prophetic people in this world is not a journey that we can travel alone. And so we start to get ourselves isolated and self-sufficient for the shame and pride where actually what we need to do to counter that is to be honest and vulnerable and follow Jesus' example, take people with us and pray together in the power of the Spirit. And so I want to ask you, when was the last time you just opened up and you were vulnerable with others and you asked people to lay on hands and pray for you in the power of the Spirit? Are you trying to just do this on your own and just pray your way through it or be just strong and get through it? When was the last time you let others in and pray for you in the power of the Holy Spirit for breakthrough in your life? Are you starting to see isolation creep in? Anna Mason's going to talk about that in two weeks' time. Uh, then we're going to, um, the third gravitational pull. You with me? Are we still good? Great. So the third gravitational pull is towards hopelessness. Um, and the thing that we need to cultivate in light of that is persistent prayer. We need to cultivate persistent prayer. These are the things that start to contribute to hopelessness, waiting. You've been waiting for this breakthrough. You've been praying these prayers over others or over yourself for a long time, but you're still waiting. It doesn't seem to have come to pass, or at least not how you thought it would. You're confused. Well, why is this all happening? And we've heard again an extraordinary uh, faithfulness of Frieza in the midst of utter confusion and anger and hurt and disappointment. These things are part of life in the seven. And if we're not careful, they can start to lead to hopelessness. Um, and so I want to talk about, um, about persisting in prayer. And, and the reason why this stuff is so common in our life, right? I think, can we all relate to that list? 
um, is because, and this is a bit of theologian speak, not me, I'm not a theologian, uh, but speaking about other theologians, this is what people talk about, just to give us some understanding of this. So there are some people down the centuries who've thought of, of an, so eschatology, that's that word in there. Eschatology is essentially a study of like the, the coming of the kingdom of God, the end times, but the coming of the kingdom of God in its fullness. Um, and there's some people who've had like an over-realized um, overly present eschatology where the kingdom is just like fully, fully here now. Others have had an under-realized eschatology, essentially a futuristic one where basically say, just hold on guys, we're just going to wait and just be as faithful as we can until a time that's going to come when the, then the kingdom will come. When Jesus returns again, then the kingdom will come. And we here at KC are part of a school of thinking that would be more about inaugurated eschatology, which is that the kingdom is the, is the other word for now and not yet. Um, and essentially it's where the kingdom is a growing kingdom, that it's come in part. Jesus inaugurated it and he's called us to be a part of growing it on this earth. Um, and the, where we get that from uh, is, is from the parable of the mustard seed. And because of the time, I, I won't read it fully now. But Jesus says, that he tells this story. This is what Jesus said. This is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. The eighth day, the eternal kingdom looks like. Well, it looks like a mustard seed, the smallest seed that they knew of in those times, planted in the soil of this earth. And it's growing, and it's growing, and it's growing, and it's growing. And he's inviting us in on that process. And so it's, 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 it, the, it's a growing kingdom in this earth. And that's why one of the key teachings he does on prayer is about the persistent widow where Jesus, if you read it when you get home, most parables, he shows you what God is like. Just remember with this one, he's showing you what God, what God is not like. Okay, so it's a contrast, not a comparison. Just bear that in mind when you read it when you get home, because it, the judge is awful in this thing. Anyway, so see, but the, the, the point is, he says, in this gap, in this gap, until the, the, until the mustard seed is fully grown and the kingdom is fully here, you're going to need to be able to persist in prayer and not give up hope. And for me in my life, I'll just tell you this quickly, like um, there was a time for me where this was, this was massively relevant. And um, I, uh, I, I ended up going to Exeter University. Um, any, no? Okay, I thought there might be something. Uh, and, um, but before that, I had like a disastrous attempt at Birmingham University. And I went there in the September first year, um, uh, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, ready to take it on, and uh, ended up tail between my legs coming back in February. Um, and I made it to about, yeah, the end of February. And um, the reality was, because in that period of time, about the year building up to it, I was just going through a really difficult time of my life. Um, and it was essentially, yeah, we're going into the details, but it was, a, it was just a situation of quite intense emotional abuse. Um, and, uh, and really, like, I just hadn't ever experienced anything like it before, and I didn't just have, didn't have the language or the skill or whatever to deal with it, but I tried to just go it alone and tried to deal with it alone and um, ended up in Birmingham just overwhelmed by the situation, which just got worse and worse in Birmingham. And... Um, and you just had this like dark, dingy bedroom in halls of residence, right? And um, and I just ended up. It just got so bad. I would just stay in there day after day after day. And I draw the curtains and I pretend I wasn't there. And I wouldn't get out of bed until three in the afternoon. And um, everyone who'd knock on the door, I just pretend I wasn't there. And I'd try and summon up the strength to to when the evening came and everyone came back from lectures. I'd sort of come out and pretend that I hadn't been there all day, um, and just try and join in with regular life, right? And in that time, it was just so overwhelming and so difficult. Um, and I just, just fell into this really, really deep depression and high levels of anxiety. And, um, and honestly, my prayer life at that time, I, I really had isolated myself. 
you know, feeling, just didn't want to bother other people with this, you know, pride, shame, um, all in the mix. And um, anyway, my prayer life at that time honestly just looked like, just like, rescue me, God, would you rescue me? And it was the reality that I would pray that prayer and then the next day I would still feel like I felt and um, nothing had seemingly changed. And in those, in those times, like, I, I, I just still felt, though, that I knew who God was. And this situation was awful and I was hating it, but I still somehow knew who God was. And I just kept going and I just kept praying those prayers. And, and the thing is about it, and I look back now, is like I, I was praying, essentially, would you rescue me from this situation? You know, and, and the reality was that God has rescued me through the situation. Right? I'm sure so many of us can relate to that as a, as a thing. That I, I, I wanted, my vision for my life in that moment was like, Lord, rescue me from this moment. But what Jesus was doing was genuinely establishing me on him for the, my lifetime. I really believe that. I was trying to be rescued from a moment. He was establishing me for my lifetime. I still depend on the lessons I learned, the intimacy I developed with Jesus in that time. I'm looking from an earthly perspective from a very temporal moment. He's looking from a heavenly one. And sometimes we just need to, in the reality of seven days when the kingdom has not fully grown yet, we have to learn to persist. If I'd given up, as I'd wanted to do often, then I don't know where things would be right now. We have to be people who persist. Oswald Chambers puts it like this, because this is ultimately faith, right? This is ultimately faith. Faith is deliberate confidence in the character of God, whose ways we do not understand at the time. Corey Tamboon amazingly writes it like this, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. In a time, in an era, in the seven days, in a time of a growing kingdom and a not yet fully established one, we have to have it in our toolkit. We have to be people who hold on to hope. That is what we bring. We bring hope to a hurting world through Jesus Christ. Walter Brueggemann puts it like this. We are ordained of God to be people of hope. It is there by virtue of our being in the image of the promissory God. In other words, a God who has made promises. He has made promises. And we can have hope as a result. Hope is the decision to which God invites his people. A decision against despair, against permanent consignment to chaos, oppression, barrenness and exile. Kirsty put it amazingly, right? Prayer for her means a continuation of hope. Amazing, amazing. Some of you right now will be in a dark, dingy room in Birmingham in your own life, an equivalent. You'll be going through a time where you're wondering, this is confusing, I'm waiting a lot, what is going on? Wondering whether to give up in some way. And I want to say it's, it's, it's our calling as this prophetic people to cling, to keep the imagination alive and keep hope alive. Final one, and we'll land with this, is desensitization. And, um, we, we, uh, and, and to counter that, we need to develop a life of intercessory prayer where we're, we're just calling on God for his kingdom to break in to this one. And honestly, I think this just comes through just through saturation with the brokenness of the world, right? Just, just, it's so around us so often, so much of the time that we can end up just coping by numbing ourselves and being desensitized to it, adjusting to it, as Shane Claiborne was speaking about last week. And he, and he was quoting Martin, Martin, Martin Luther King, right? When he was talking about, um, they were saying to Martin Luther King, you're maladjusted. And he basically was saying, damn right, I'm maladjusted. I don't want to be adjusted to the things of this world. This is actually what he said from a lecture, get this, called Don't Sleep Through the Revolution. 
Don't sleep through the revolution. What are we talking about in this series? Uprising, a revolution against the disorder of this world. So don't sleep through it. He says this, there are some things in our nation and in our world to which I'm proud to be maladjusted. I never intend to adjust myself to segregation and discrimination. I never intend to become adjusted to religious bigotry. I never intend to adjust myself to economic conditions that will take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few and leave millions of people perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of prosperity. What a, what a sentence. Through such maladjustment, through being people with a prophetic imagination in this world, people of the eighth day and the seven, we will be able to emerge from the bleak and desolate midnight of man's inhumanity to man into the bright and glittering daybreak of freedom and justice. Incredible. Desensitization, adjustment, numbing kicks in. And honestly, I think if that happens, we end up just not praying. We realize that, like, if you just start to care less about something, you just pray about it less. Um, and so I wonder if the, one of the ways, and this is just remind, I was reminded of it just this week, with a guy who came with Shane, with Shane Claiborne, and he just said, like, I think one of the key things we need to learn is to lament and to, to pause at the moment of pain. I think we, we so often just want to, like, oh, it's too much for us, or, or we rush through, or we just think, like, we're fix-it people, and we just go, and go through it. But if we do that, then we don't engage with it. We don't look it in the face. We don't experience it fully, and we don't hurt. And if we don't hurt, then we're not going to cry out to God, and we're not going to, you know, contend for his kingdom to come because we're just a little bit numb to it and to everything. Why do 51% of people who don't even believe in God pray? Because someone they know and love is hurting, and they feel it, and they cry out to someone or something somewhere to change it. This is how Jesus did it. He came to Jerusalem right at the end to this incredible intercessory moment the ultimate intercessory moment and as he approached the city how did he approach it the reason he could go to the cross I believe is that when Jesus drew near to Jerusalem he wept over it he saw it he saw it in pain he saw it broken and he wept over it he paused at that moment of pain and it was his fuel to intercede for us so over this series, these are the topics we're going to be looking at. These are the four talks to come. Devotional prayer life, communal prayer life, persistent prayer life, and intercessory prayer life. And I really, really believe that if you and I together, we can cultivate a devotional prayer life where we stay intimate with the person of Jesus, sustained by his presence every single bit of our lives. And if we can cultivate a communal prayer life where we contend for breakthrough in each other's lives and a persistent prayer life where we push through the disappointments of life and stay full of hope, if we can cultivate an intercessory prayer life where we don't give up on the world or get adjusted to its brokenness but keep imagining what Jesus could do in it, I really do believe that what Karl Barth said can be true, that we will begin to see an uprising against the disorder of this world. So shall we pray for that?